everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You are listening to another episode of It's All About Food. Thank you for joining me. As you know, on this podcast, we typically talk about food. That's my passion. But there's a lot that's related to food, as you may know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while. We talk about food and politics, food and health, food and the environment, food and animals, food and holidays, and how delicious food can be. And there's a lot related to food, which is why I came up with this title a long time ago. It's all about food. Today, we're going to be talking about glyphosate. And we talked about glyphosate before, but I have someone with me that is going to give you a lot more insight into the background of glyphosate and the biggest company that's involved with glyphosate, which is Monsanto, and also the company that acquired Monsanto, Bayer or Bayer, depending on where you are. The thing about glyphosate is that we consume it, not intentionally, but because it's used as an herbicide in farming and in people's gardens, glyphosate residue gets into our food and can wreak a lot of havoc and can affect people's lives in a very negative way. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. I have with me Chadi Nabhan, MD, MBA. Dr. Nabhan is a board certified hematologist and a medical oncologist who practiced oncology and treated lymphoma patients for years. He has over 300 peer-reviewed papers, abstracts, and book chapters. He has worked in diverse healthcare settings and is the creator and host of the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. We're going to be talking about his new book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. And I'm hearing this dramatic background music behind me, <laughs> although I'm not using any music in this podcast, but maybe I should add it. Anyway, welcome. May I call you Chadi? Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. Welcome and thank you, Karen, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, people uh, come through with different books and suggestions for the podcast, and I thought I definitely want to speak to you. This is a passionate subject of mine for so many reasons. I know that when you were an expert witness in a number of trials, which you go into great detail in this book, the plaintiff and the defense would ask you who you are and what your experience is. And I'm not going to be antagonistic. I'm going to be very friendly here. But could you give me a brief description as you would when you were in the trials? Yeah, you know, in the trials, uh, what I've learned is obviously the uh, plaintiff, which is the side I was uh, with, uh, would... Uh, uh, blow up uh, who I am and the defense, which is Monsanto, try to downgrade who I am. It's just the way it is, right? Because you want to appeal to the jury. But at the end of the day, I'm a cancer doctor. I'm someone who has taken care of patients who were unfortunately diagnosed with cancer and who needed treatment. I focused in my academic career on lymphoma, uh, lymphoid malignancies, and leukemias. And I had a little bit of uh, a small clinic uh, for prostate cancer as well. 
Mm. Over the years, I've done a lot of clinical trials. I've uh, written and published and researched in the field of non-Hodgkin lymphoma and Hodgkin lymphoma. And I've been fortunate to collaborate with a lot of folks and, and as you mentioned, uh, had a lot of papers in that field. Um, and then subsequently, I decided to get uh, a master's in business administration because I really wanted to uh, focus on healthcare. I wanted to understand better the healthcare ecosystem. Similar to what you mentioned, Karen, that your podcast is focused on food, but there's a lot that is intertwined mm -hmm. uh, with food. It's not just what you eat. It's until it gets to the table. There's a lot of issues that occur. The same thing in healthcare. It's just not about holding the stethoscope and examining the patient. There's a lot of elements that are involved in patient's care. And I wanted to understand the economics and the business. And um, so I, I did that for a couple of years. And, um, and subsequently, I transitioned out of academic practice. And right now, I, am, uh, um, I, I work um, <laughs> in precision oncology. I chair a very large collaborative network of research institutions focused on big data and research and molecular studies, understanding the molecular underpinning of various uh, cancers. But that is really who I am. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cancer specialist um, and, and, um, and uh, a cancer doctor and a researcher. Um, I, I, I also view myself as an educator and a communicator. I really wanted, and thank you for mentioning my podcast, I wanted to start a podcast that really reaches people about general healthcare topics, because there's a lot out there about healthcare. Uh, so I started a podcast called Healthcare Unfiltered. It airs every Tuesday morning, and it talks about various topics, sometimes about a particular disease, and 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 sometimes about policy, um, sometimes about other things, and usually invite guests that... Um, that, this, uh, that are experts in that area. So that's who I am. I'm applauding. Bravo. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're very, you're very kind. The business of healthcare. It hits me personally, and I know that it hits many people personally, because we all care about our personal health. I had advanced ovarian cancer in 2006, and I'm happy that I'm still here and thriving. Well, I'm clapping for you now. Thank you. But I learned a lot during that journey. And unfortunately, the business of healthcare does not always support the patient. And as we're going to talk about in your book, Toxic Exposure, a lot of it has to do with our capitalistic society and that money and profit is the most important thing in many situations, which is very unfortunate. I know that in just dealing with my own journey with cancer, it wasn't just about finding the right doctor for my situation. I had to deal with my insurance company, which was a disaster. And I had to deal with all the billings of all the different entities that were involved in making charges down to a Band-Aid. <laughs> it was very, very complicated. And I think that I'm fortunate because I'm not a rich person, but I am financially okay I speak English in an English-speaking country. I have a lot of support and love around me, and I'm smart. And if you don't have any one of those or a few of those, you're really at a severe disadvantage if you have a serious health crisis. And we see that more and more. 
This is really important. I think that uh, maybe, I mean, the two comments I have to uh, what you're saying, first of all, congratulations on perseverance. This is, I mean, for folks who are listening, um, they may not really understand um, what this is until they're, they, hopefully they'll never be diagnosed. But you know what I say, Karen, everybody, everybody is either a current patient previous patient or a future patient. Mm. There is no one that is going to escape healthcare. No one. Um, and, and I think, and I think you're right. The healthcare system has a lot of advantages. We have one of the best advances in technology, medications, all of these things. But it does, it does, it is expensive. And I think the question is, um, why is that? Are there opportunities to make it more affordable and more seamless? And the cancer journey is very, very, very challenging. And um, in fact, you know, I don't want to plug this, but I do have another book coming out next year about demystifying cancer. It's really for patients and families. Because I noticed a lot of people ask questions about, which really tells me that despite how much information there's out there on the internet, there's a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. And it's not very always easy to to know the reality. So I really wanted to simplify things for cancer. So so you 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 hit on a lot of things. Uh, the the last thing I will say is unfortunately many in economic money and economics control a lot of things in our life beyond healthcare. Wars in the world occur because of economics. I mean we're not going to get into politics, but the reality is a lot of wars occur because of economics. Um, and and beyond healthcare, right? I mean, every, I mean, you know, some the other day I was thinking about our education system uh, and the college tuition and everything that's going on. I mean, there are these, I mean, that's also economics, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, why would any college charges $100,000 per year? So, so, so I think, I think there's a lot of things here, but at the end of the day, what I've learned economics control all facets of our lives in a capitalistic society beyond healthcare. I know you have two twin sons in high school and you're probably thinking a lot about Oh, college. that's why I brought it up because I'm looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm telling you. Yep. Well, it's a good thing that you've been doing what you're doing and working as an expert witness because I'm sure that's helped a bit uh, financially for you. And I don't say that in a negative way. I know that in reading the book, the defense often used that uh, as another of course. way to insult you. Like you're here for the money, but everybody in the courtroom was there for their job, which yeah. paid them. I, so. wish the, I wish the lawyers would really provide their invoices and how much they got paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I cannot imagine. I just know here in New York, building co-op attorneys charge six fifty an hour. So a Monsanto attorney, yeah. I I can't even imagine. Some of their expert witnesses in recent trials, they've said on the stand they were charging Monsanto nine hundred dollars per hour. So it's oh, that, look, that's look, it's, less it's, than I thought. Yeah, but it's all about you know, look in a court system. I mean, in a court system, it's really all about winning the jury. I mean, at the end of the day, when you have a trial by jury, uh-huh. all what you care about as a lawyer is winning the jury to your side. So if you're able to strategically 
show the jury that this was obscene and terrible and awful, you get them to your side. So it, it's all strategy. I mean, mm. at the end of the day, your goal, once the trial comes to the jury, at this point, all what you care about as a lawyer is telling the jury your story and have them buy into what you're saying. That's really it. Before you get into the trial, the courtroom and the jury, there's a lot of maneuvers and things like that. But once you're in the courtroom and the jury is in the box, these are the 12 or 15 or whatever, how many people that you need to convince. The other person you need to convince is the judge to allow you to admit certain things into evidence or not allow things into evidence, which was shocking to me because I thought you put everything in the courtroom and you show the jury everything. But the reality is both sides, I mean, you know, the, mm -hmm. the plaintiff want to admit a lot of things to the jury so they can win the case and the defense want to prevent that from happening so they can win the case. And the judge serves almost as the arbitrator. So the judge says, well, we can admit this into evidence. We don't need to admit this. But what does that mean? It means that the jury and the jurors do not see always the entire picture. They see what the judge allows them to see. And that's where strategy plays a role on both sides, because they want to really, it's like a chess match. And I think in the mm -hmm. book, I comment a lot about the chess. Clearly, I like chess. But, you know, it's, it's a chess match almost. You're yeah. trying to really outmaneuver your opponent to win. And the judge, although the judge may know a lot about law, the judge doesn't know a lot about a lot of subjects. And how can a judge possibly understand everything that's being presented to know if it really should be admissible or not? Yeah, that is, yeah. I mean, it's there's a lot of legalese issues here, you know, in terms of, you know, how the both sides play the role in trying to convince the judge it should be admissed, admitted or not into evidence. And then the judge has to really rule whether they allow certain things or not. And and honestly, even in the book, I did mention how surprised I was about this. I really was not aware. I thought like you put all of the evidence in there that's available that was found through discovery um, and you show it to the jury. But even through discovery, you don't really sh show everything. So it's actually pretty interesting learning about our court system and about everything that actually goes goes around. Um, and, and uh, you know, you hope that the judges are impartial. That's your mm. hope. Um, <laughs> it's hard to tell, though, right? Because we all, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, to put all of your biases outside of the courtroom and to come in completely neutral, it really requires a lot of discipline, honestly. Mm -hmm. So, so um, you know, I can't speak for anyone, and I don't know, obviously, but but... You know, I, I'm I'm happy to say that the first three trials I testified in went our way, but uh, we'll talk about subsequent trials that yes, Monsanto won. Yeah. So the star of this book is glyphosate. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about what it is and why it's good and or bad? Well, I don't think it's good, but we'll talk oh, about I'm it. I'm giving you uh, I'm giving you the opportunity. I'm yeah, not being, yeah, yeah. Trying no, not I... to be biased. You know, um, and I will talk about this because I did not know much about it before I was involved in this. But uh, look, um, glyphosate uh, is basically um, a, a chemical 
um, uh, that um, you know can bind to minerals uh, and remove minerals like calcium, magnesium, manganese, copper, zinc, and and all of that. And it was initially discovered by a Swiss uh, uh, chemist, and then subsequently Monsanto chemists uh, John Franz and, and Phil Hamm. Um, were able to identify that it has an herbicidal activity. So it actually could to kill weeds. And then Monsanto, that employed these two chemists, patented um, the glyphosate um, and made it the main ingredient of what they called Roundup. So Roundup has the glyphosate, which is the main ingredient, <clears throat> plus surfactants. Surfactants, uh, think of them like a gooey materials that are around glyphosate. But what they do is they kind of help the glyphosate stick to the surface of where they are supposed to be sprayed, for example. So if it comes on your skin because of surfactants, the absorption of glyphosate into the body becomes a little bit um, uh, more potent. And because of surfactants, when you spray it on the weeds, it sticks on there and it does its activity. Um, so that's what glyphosate is. It is the main ingredient of Roundup. Uh, and Roundup is a wheat killer that was patented by Monsanto in the early 70s and was first used commercially in 1974, uh, the first time that was, um, was used. And uh, we'll talk about that, but currently it is obviously the most used herbicide in, in the world and in the US. And we'll talk about how this actually happened. But that's what glyphosate is its core. Now, during these trials, you would talk about different studies that had been done to sh to demonstrate the safety or lack of safety in glyphosate. And I know it was mentioned in the book, but I think a key point is that most of the studies are done on glyphosate itself and not glyphosate with these other ingredients that work with it that make it more powerful and its impact more profound. And so when you're talking about these studies, you're not really talking about reality. Yeah, you know, and, and this is such a nuanced thing that is so important because there were internal email communications from Monsanto that were shown to the jury and were actually shown in the courts that where Monsanto executives and scientists were actually saying in the email that we cannot say Roundup is not carcinogenic because no long-term studies were done on Roundup. And, and, and Monsanto has always argued that we've done so many studies on glyphosate, 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 but they somehow conveniently uh, did not really explain, or I mean, the plaintiff did, but Monsanto would argue we've done the studies on glyphosate. Uh, but the reality is Roundup uh, is not just glyphosate. It is the main ingredient, but there's more with, with glyphosate, such as sur surfactants. And even Monsanto's own admission hmm. in court that we did not do long-term carcinogenicity <laughs> studies on Roundup. Um, but a lot of the studies that were, uh, that were presented in court um, were on glyphosate. And I think we use those synonymous glyphosate and Roundup because glyphosate is the main ingredient. The two things I would say to this is there were folks in the expert, uh, uh, folks on the plaintiff side that were testifying for what we call general causation. So general causation means, are you able to show the jury that glyphosate and Roundup generally could cause cancer? That's really what you need to show. And then I would come in and testify in what we call specific causation. 
specific causation means now that we understood that this particular compound is hazardous, can you show me that it caused cancer in this particular individual that is suing Monsanto? It's like almost, you know, smoking, right? Uh, can you prove that smoking causes cancer in general? Okay. And then second thing is you have a particular patient who has cancer. Can you prove me that in this particular patient, the cancer was because of tobacco? And that's very hard to do. Not easy. I would say not easy, but I, I think that, uh, you know, um, I think as, as a physician, um, and as a researcher, sometimes we have to do that in real life, because I am sure, Karen, when you were unfortunately diagnosed with ovarian cancer, one of the first questions you asked your doctors, why? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's normal. That means we're human beings. We have to ask the question of why. And sometimes your doctor says, I don't know. Sometimes they say, maybe there's a gene in the family. Sometimes they say maybe there's an environment. I mean, there's a lot of things, right? But sometimes they say they don't know. And I think that's okay. We need to stay humble. It is okay not to know. But, you know, in these cases that I testified in, I was convinced that the non-Hodgkin lymphoma that occurred in these patients were mainly because of glyphosate and Roundup. And that's what I testified to. So... In my own experience, I didn't ask why. I wanted to know why, but I knew that they wouldn't know exactly. And in my own experience and research and study, I realized that it's not just one thing in most cases that causes cancer. It's a combination of many different things. And then I started to put together the pieces for my own experience. But yeah, we do want to know why. And we live in a toxic environment. We do. And that's a big piece of it. I worked as a chemical engineer, and I also uh, used a lot of tampons as a teenager. And uh, I think those were two big, big issues in my case. And, you know, maybe a little, oh, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Yeah. I mean, I mean anyway. and, some, and sometimes we don't know. Look, I mean, I think, I think, I think we, we have to recognize that a lot of things we don't know, and we might know in the future, it's okay. There's also an emotional com component that right. you cannot target. Right, right, right. But, you know, I mean, I think, I think there are many things we know today we did not know 10 years ago. Sure. And I hope in 10 years we know more than what we know today. That's what's called science, progress, knowledge, and advancement. And I think it's okay not to know, but I still think it's important to ask the questions as to why, because it hopefully can lead us to know more in the future. This book focuses on the three trials you were involved with. And those three trials involved, each of them involved one individual who had cancer, lymphoma, and they were all not doing very well. And they were suing Monsanto because they believed in their particular instance that the, the glyphosate and the Roundup were the cause of their disease. And it's, easy, I want to put air quotes around easy, for everyone else involved in the trial to forget that it's about a human life. That's something that I don't quite understand about the legal system. I know that lawyers are supposed to represent their clients, but at some point they might hear enough evidence from the other side. It's like, I'm on the wrong side. 
That will never when, happen. I, well, I know that, but I just don't understand that. You're talking about a human life and this person was scarred and damaged and dying because of an activity. And it's just no, hard to I, understand. I, I hear you. Um, and the doctors that are expert witnesses on the other side, you described some of them and how you had uh, great respect for them and for their work. And then what happens? I mean, you disagree with them despite, you know, uh, look, I mean, um, I think I think that we we must we must um, respectfully disagree with other people sometimes. Um, and it's not uncommon in medicine and in cancer care that people might get two different opinions from two different doctors for various reasons. Um, I think that from a lawyer perspective, it's pretty interesting what you mentioned, actually, because I do think there are, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, in order for you to represent somebody, you have to be convinced of their innocence somehow, I think, or you must be getting paid so much money that it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and obviously this was, you know, this was a civil litigation, was not like a criminal court. Like it was not, my point is, it was like about like a murder or anything like that. But, but, the, but you know, let's say you're presenting, you're representing somebody who killed someone. Well, it's either you're convinced that he did not kill that person, or you know, you 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 know that they killed them, but you still have to defend them as much as possible. So it's like in law, you must believe in your client in order for you to represent them, in my opinion. But what you questioned is more interesting. Well, let's say you see evidence with time that makes you believe that your client may be not what they told you they are. I don't know what would happen then. I mean, I think that's a legal question, whether you say I'm, I cannot represent you or something like that, or <laughs> that that's an interesting question that you ask. And I don't have the answer to that, but I, I think it's a good question to ask a lawyer. Yes, and I do know quite a few of them. We should ask them. <laughs> because it's really, it's really interesting, right? Like you're representing somebody and then you find something like, ah, that's not what I thought I was signing up for. Maybe I should go to a different lawyer. Like, I don't know what they would do, honestly. Like, I don't know what the code of ethics in the legal system in situations like that. Well, occasionally we see in big political trials, some of the lawyers, there's usually a giant team of lawyers and some of them leave the case. Switch sides. <laughs> <laughs> and then they go write a book. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm convinced everybody is in politics so they could write a book. Have you seen anyone who's been in the political system, whether they are on each side, right or left, has not written a book? Like, it's crazy. Yeah. And they tell they tell all. And they tell all. That's yeah. so funny. Mm, it's sad. Well, you know, you were saying that these weren't murder trials, but indirectly they were. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, you know, I mean, th these are legal, you know, the way the legal system classifies uh, trials and things like that. I mean, obviously, in the first three trials that I testified in, which were really very important because they were the first three trials ever against Monsanto and Roundup and really led to the settlements, the big settlement we'll talk about. But, you know, um, these three, in these three trials, Monsanto was found, um, 
liable and they had they they were the jury ruled uh, in punitive damages uh, in these three trials you and many other people in the trial rely on scientific studies that have been done uh, many of them on animals like rats and mice and which i have i take personal issue with but that's the current situation that we have the question is the integrity of the data. And you, in your book, go into the history of how glyphosate was approved and how the integrity of some of the tests were, were not good. Where, and some people actually were convicted of, of fraudulent activity related to the approval of tests on studies on glyphosate. And I wonder when that happens, um, can you invalidate them? Because you know, glyphosate is still approved. Yeah, you're you're absolutely correct, and and really, uh, you know, I, you read the book. The book is not written for medical professionals or legal professionals. The book is written for everybody, and I wanted people to really understand um, what happened because I wanted to write the story of what actually happened. And you bring up a very good point, which is for listeners in 1974. When the um, Monsanto, when Monsanto brought Roundup to the commercial market, uh, the EPA at that time, the Environmental Protection Agency, was a young agency. was not really very, um, you know, like thousands and thousands of people. It was just a young agency. Did not have a lot of resources. But as part of registration, as part of registering uh, glyphosate. Uh, the company must submit uh, studies, toxicology studies. Um, and uh, Monsanto utilized an outside lab called IBT Labs. Um, not just Monsanto, other companies utilize the same lab. And what's interesting is that this lab, to, to what you commented on, was subsequently found to be fraudulent. They were actually fudging data. So, you know, and the, the founders of the lab were convicted and, and your listeners could just Google all of this. All of the information in the book, by the way, are publicly available. Like there's nothing, everything is searchable, uh, which is fun, I think, because people might read something and then go to the internet and just try to find it to verify. So, so what happened at the time is the EPA started demanding from Monsanto additional studies because of these studies that were, you know, they were, they said the, the, the original classification from the EPA about glyphosate was, it was possibly carcinogenic. And there's an actual document I put in the book that shows how the EPA in the early 80s said that. And they were asking from Monsanto some studies. And then with time, the EPA changed their position completely in the late 80s, saying it's completely safe without additional studies, and they dropped their request of the studies that they were asking Monsanto for. Now, what happened, nobody knows, but basically they stopped asking for the studies and the classification changed, and here we are right now. And here we are, yeah. It's hard to understand, it's hard to believe, but on the other hand, it isn't. I worked for 20 years in the semiconductor industry and I, I saw managers, in the production area fudge data from time to time, nothing life-threatening, but just, you know, it was the end of the quarter and the stockholders were going to want to see sales and the product needed to it's go out. We call this creative accounting, right? <laughs> 
and you just magnify that. You know, when the stakes are higher, yeah. the fudging is going to get bigger. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But I have to say one thing. I want to say because okay. we talked about the conduct. Um, there's one thing. I'm just gonna, you know, just in the in the book, just to give you an example of one one question. For example, in the in the last trial, just like all of these questions happen. So this is a question that the jury has had to answer, right? And it was question 16, and I write this on page 271. It says, did Monsanto engage in conduct with malice, oppression, or fraud committed by one or more officers, directors, or managing agents of Monsanto acting on behalf of Monsanto? And the jury said, yes. yes. And then the following question was, what amount of punitive damages, if any, do you award to Alberta Piliad, which was the wife of the elderly couple in the third trial? And the answer was $1 billion. So I think the, the, the punitive damages usually are awarded if, there is, if the jury is convinced of malice, of poor conduct. And in these three trials, the jury was convinced of malice and poor conduct by the company based on the evidence that they saw. And I have two comments to that. Three, four, five, six. Um, first of all, that was a fabulous ending. But in the end, Monsanto wasn't fined a billion dollars. The, the damages were reduced. So right. that was a bit disappointing. Right. And I'm not quite sure why that happened. And then the other thing is, I remember reading about these trials, but not in the detail that your book went into. And that passage that you just read should have been front page headline and it wasn't that yeah. should have really been brought out that malice was done that fraudulent activity occurred and i didn't see that yeah i mean it depends <clears throat> i think some of them may have you know commented like in the headlines like the jury awarded two billion dollars or things like that and you have to read obviously um the article to see what that what that means um but there's a lot that has happened during those two years of the trials. I mean, this was really big at the time. The first one was 2018 and the second two were 2019 and, and then COVID hit and things slowed down a lot. But, um, but I think a, a lot of the, um, you know, some of the reporters at the Wall Street Journal, they actually called the acquisition of Monsanto by Bayer one of the worst business decisions a company has done. There were a lot of uh, demonstrations and protests in Germany, in Berlin, and other areas. And uh, the CEO of Bayer uh, lost the shareholder confidence vote. Um, and by the way, there's a new CEO that actually joined, uh, started mm. this year. And so there's a lot of the business components that sometimes the uh, journals or the uh, articles focus on, which is the business impact of things. I think in terms of the verdict uh, and not paying a billion dollars, um, it is not uncommon that both sides appeal any verdict that they don't like, and, and the judge then reduces the uh, punitive damages and, and all of that. These are legal, our legal system. But as your listeners should know, is that eventually Bayer paid $11 billion to settle over 100,000 cases. So that is a lot. And at the same time, they had to pay $63 billion to acquire Monsanto, by the way. And they acquired Monsanto, the, the deal closed in 2018. 
as the trials were actually accumulating, as the Johnson trial was going on, I think Bayer underestimated the impact of the litigation and the trials on the on what's going to happen mm. because their share price, their stock share price, mm. went down by two thirds. Wow! So they actually lost a lot of market cap. So going back to your original question about economics, when you look at the economics of this, to me, it is mind-boggling what you know that 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 Bayer did not choose to really figure out a way to say, okay, we think we put a warning label and just call it a day and we're done with this. But they paid millions and millions of dollars to in legal fees, millions. I mean, it's a lot of money. Nobody knows how much they're paying. They paid $63 billion to acquire Monsanto. Their market cap went down by two thirds. Their stock share price was about 14. Now it's about 13, 14. And they paid $11 billion in, in settlements. And they had to pay, for example, for Johnson. And, and uh, so, you know, economically, it was certainly not a very uh, good decision for Bayer when you think about it. Hmm. But there is an arrogance about this that we are not going to admit a mistake no matter what. And we're going to keep going. And yeah. uh, so we'll see. So you mentioned $11 billion were paid out by Bayer. And uh, I'm wondering. I, I think, yeah, that's what, okay. I, I, that, that's what they announced. Like, I don't know if it's actually well, got paid and how much each person got paid. I'm, I'm curious about the cases, the difference between an individual case and a class action case and what's been going on since. So have there been a lot of individual cases that came out or yeah. were they all in the queue at the time you did your three and then? B very good question. So so the, the first three were, in fact, the, the in my opinion, the most important three because they actually set the stage for what happened afterwards. And I've been fortunate to help uh, to be part of the team that won these three cases. But um, after that, Monsanto and Bayer became more strategic. So um, as, as you know, Karen, um, winning the cases, like we said, depends on the case itself, depends who are the lawyers you are facing, and then depends on where the trial is, the juries, um, the um, jurisdiction. Is it more friendly to defense? Is it more friendly to plaintiff? There's a lot that actually plays a role in this. So Monsanto has one several individual trials after yeah. that and the reason they have won that is because some of these trials some of these cases were very weak they were not cases that i would have testified in for example i testified in one of them later on we'll, we'll go into it if you want to but but they were very weak some of them were in jurisdiction that is well known to be more favored to monsanto such as mm -hmm. st louis that's where the headquarters of Monsanto were, where okay. they employed thousands and thousands of people. Right. So, so what listeners need to know is winning a case or losing a case, there are lots of factors about this. In my opinion, does not absolve Monsanto from the responsibility. If they were completely innocent, they would not pay $11 billion plus. <laughs> if they were completely innocent, they would not. If they were completely innocent, they would not issue a press release at the end of 2022, and they say, we would like to get rid of Roundup from the shelves for residential use. So they had promised that in 2023, they will actually uh, take out Roundup from the shelves where uh, 
people can't buy it for residential use. So you have to be a farmer or licensed pesticide applicator to buy it. It's still on the shelves, unfortunately. I could find it on Home uh-huh. Depot and, and everywhere. But but that's what they said. And in their press release about that, they actually said the reason we want to do that is to minimize uh, litigation. And I, I'll try to find um, uh, that for you in terms of the press release, because I think it's interesting um, uh, what what they actually said. So they said they're going to remove Roundup in the stores for residential use, and they haven't. And <laughs> the reason is because they don't want these cases because it costs money. And the big ag- giant agribusiness companies that use it aren't going to sue because they don't care because it's not the big corporate executives that are being harmed. It's the workers and you're going to have to get the individual workers that are being harmed. And, and very often they're either um, undocumented workers or people with not a lot of means to bring a case forward. So I mean, if, they, if, if your choice. listeners go to Bayer.com and they go to under like media and news, there was a press release on July 29, 2021. And it says, you know, Bayer today provide an update on its five point plan to address future roundup, blah, blah. And they say a decision to withdraw from the national class process. And then they said they would like to actually remove the thing from uh, 2023 and they say we would, you know, they, they talk about, uh, let me, sh- here it is. It says, uh, agriculture giant bear announced it would phase out the sale of glyphosate-based products, including the popular herbicide roundup for residential use starting in 2023. Oh, okay, and they they're starting. The, the, yeah, the decision is intended to reduce future lawsuits related to the safety of the herbicide glyphosate. So <laughs> the decision had nothing to do with the safety of people. It's exactly. really to reduce the lawsuits. <laughs> exactly. I, I heard that. Yep. Yeah. But and, and that's really on their on their website. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So what about class action suits? Have there been any of those related to Roundup that have been won? Yeah. Or... So basically, you know, after the the um because so the you second... mentioned in the book you see um d- different appeals for different lawyers saying if if you have cancer because of roundup you know you're gonna see that you know honestly i think it's gonna be here's the thing what happens so after the second trial the second trial with hardiman against monsanto this was a federal trial uh was tried uh uh uh, in front of judge chabria uh who was the federal judge that was overseeing all of the cases but basically, when Monsanto lost that trial, the judge ordered uh, mediation between both parties that they should start talking to each other, and they should start having a conversation with each other and see where that goes. So uh, that led to the settlements that we talked about. But remember, some patients opt out of settlements. They say, I don't want to settle. I'm going to go sue by myself. I'm going to find mm-hmm. a law firm to sue by myself. Uh, some um, some tr- some uh, situations, Monsanto doesn't want to settle with this case if they see the case as a bad case or like an easy case to win for them in a good jurisdiction, and the case is very weak, and they and the lawyer that law firm is not exper- experienced or something of that nature. I mean, there's a lot of this. So I would say, you know, probably they settled over ninety percent of the cases, but there's always these scattered cases. 
it's kind of similar in my mind. It reminds me of asbestos. Mm. Uh, you know, you you we all know asbestos and the relation to mesothelioma, right? Yeah. But you still see ads about asbestos. You'd be driving on the highway and you see a billboard about this because there's always some patients out there that they may have opted out and things of that nature. So I think some of these individual scattered cases will continue to occur. They will both sides will be very strategic into which ones I think. Bayer wants to avoid being in a legal case that they might lose again because it will be very bad. So they will be very, very uh, judicious in deciding which case to take to court. They're not stupid. They have uh, their lawyered up very well with very expensive lawyers. So they are going to think through, okay, this case, what are our chances of winning? They probably will do a lot of studies, market research, the jury poll, the jurisdiction, the prior cases. Was it favorable to the defense? They look at the judge. Would the judge? I mean, a lot of these things happen behind closed doors before a case goes to the courtroom. I'm curious because with ovarian cancer, we have Johnson and Johnson who yeah. has been sued because of their talcum powder, which has now been shown to cause ovarian cancer. And there, I, I see a lot of these posts, and I think should I sign up on one of them <laughs> because I had ovarian cancer? I used talcum powder. Um, I think but, it doesn't hurt for you to ask the question. <clears throat> there is no reason why you shouldn't ask the question. And, and I think the law firms that, uh, if it's a well-experienced and honest law firm, will tell you, look, I mean, you're, you're, we understand your case, but we just don't think there's merit to it, or they say there's merit to it, and we're willing to take it on. Right. But there, I see so many of them. How do I know they're honest and reputable? That's a whole other research project. I think one of the law firms I worked with, uh, with Roundup, has worked with Talk as well, and oh, okay. uh, it's the it's the Wagstaff law firm, and uh, it's a consideration for you to call them. Oh, good. Okay. Very good. Toxic exposure: the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. So we've heard of just a little taste of this book, and I'm wondering, has anyone asked you for movie rights? Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Because uh, I think it would make a great film, and I'm sure there are many actors that would love to play you. Well, um, not yet, I would say. Let's <laughs> may, may, maybe, maybe, maybe someday. I think uh, uh, I have not been contacted uh, in that regard. Okay, well, I think you will, or you should be, because it would make a great film. Although I recommend people get the book and read the book, I think more people would see a film. I agree. And uh, and and if just it to get the message on audio out. as well, it is available on audio. Oh, good. Are I you reading it? I, I, I narrated it. Oh, good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. We just have a few more minutes left, and I'm just curious about a number of things. So you mentioned you're originally from Syria. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure. How old you were when you came to the States? You were around the uh, college yeah, age came, or something uh, like that? Yeah, I I think uh, uh, 23, 24, something like mm -hmm. that. So Syria is... Over 30 years now. And Syria has been in a civil war now for like 11 years about. Well, it's resolved right now. I mean, I think uh, we, it was there was a lot of issues going on uh, from 2011 to probably 2018. And I think I, I've been there in December last December. I've been there every December for the past several years, and, and things have improved significantly in Good. terms of safety and security. I think the main issues have been economics, and 
And I think uh, economically, it's been very challenging, especially with so many sanctions. I mean, yeah. Syria has been under sanctions for over 11 years. So uh, unfortunately, this affects the economics of people who live there. Yeah, it's a difficult time. I'm sure you have friends and family that are over there. I do. I do. All of my yeah. in-laws are there. Yeah. I just recently watched the film, The Swimmers. Not sure. If you know, it's on my list. It. I have I've actually heard good stuff about it. Oh, it's very I, it good. It is on my list. Yeah. And what's good about it, I think, for people who not who are not familiar with the situation or have a particular idea about refugees and immigrants, they need to see this film because it just highlights that the people that are leaving a war-torn country, they're just people, regular people with hopes and dreams and care and family and friends. And they need help. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is definitely on my list to watch. And um, uh, because I did hear, hear a lot. Yeah, of it's a very good story. It. You said that you have this podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm curious to check it out. I'm not sure if it's focused for people in the healthcare business or no, just for really. I mean, some, some episodes are a little bit more specialized or particular disease. Like I'm going to have an episode on pancreas cancer. I have an episode on prostate cancer, things like that. But I have a lot of episodes that are very, very general. And I think like I had an episode in the Inflation Reduction Act when it just got passed in Congress and, and signed into law. What does that mean? I brought a policy person from Vanderbilt and we talked about that. Um, uh, I, uh, I'm airing next week an episode about the chemotherapy shortage that is wow. actually happening in the country. And I'm interviewing the chief medical officer of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. So I think I think that there's a lot of topics that are, um, you know, the episode on July 18, I don't know when this episode is going to air, but uh, so for reference, July 18, I'm interviewing an author of a book called Burden of Pain, where he's a physician who was talking about his experience during the opioid crisis and he, how he went actually in, into jail because wow. he was accused of overprescribing, and then he wrote a book and he got out. So I tackle a lot of topics. Um, I've talked about uh, suicide. I've talked about COVID. I've talked about a lot of things. And hopefully listeners can find, uh, I don't think they're going to listen every week because some sure. episodes may not be interesting to them, um, but they will find something uh, that will be up their taste. Do you ever talk about prevention and food? Uh, I actually do. I'm airing an episode, uh, I think it's slated in August, with a researcher uh, who has done a lot of work on plant-based diet oh, and um, talking to her. I've done actually several of these. I've uh, done a keto diet. I've done about cholesterol. I've done about exercise and obesity and relation to cancer. And uh, we, I've done one on diet and cancer, but this one is specifically focused on plant-based diet and cancer. She's done a lot of research on that. She's at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And so, so yes. Uh, so I think if you go back and take a look at some of the episodes I have, you will find something pertaining to diet and, uh, and cancer. I know there's a lot of great people at Memorial Sloan Kettering and they have a great reputation, but when I was going to be treated and I consulted with them, I'm absolutely convinced I'd be dead if I had gone there. Oh, that's boy. just my personal experience <laughs> and the few doctors that I engaged with. Well, I am glad you are doing well and you had Thank a great you. team that you worked with and, and here you are uh, 15 years later. Yeah, 17 years later. But, 17. you know, people have to understand that just going to one doctor 
is not always the best situation. You need to consult with many second, and feel good opinions, about them. Second opinions are important. And, and in my future book coming out in 2024, I have an entire chapter on second opinions. Yeah. And the take-home message I would tell people, <laughs> should ask for second opinions. It's up to you. Uh, your doctor should offer sometimes second opinions to you. Depending. I've always told my patients, if you want to get a second opinion, go ahead and I'll help you. If your doctor feels offended that you are going to get a second opinion <laughs> and feels uncomfortable with that, he or she is not the doctor for you. Exactly. Well, there's arrogance. Yeah, there is. Yeah, Unfortunately, there is. in every profession, there is. Yes. Sometimes in medicine, it's a little bit... Um, it's a little bit um, uh, too much. Well, on the subject of food and prevention, I know you did, you had a lot of interest in your COVID podcast. I don't know if you did one or more than one, but my frustration regarding COVID was that we don't get good information from the government or from our healthcare professionals about the importance of diet and prevention. And I believe that if we were all eating better, COVID would not have been the disaster that it was. That's just I, quick, I, yeah, in a I mean, nutshell. I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, in all honesty, I'm not, I don't know the relationship between uh, diet and COVID. I mean, COVID is is uh, obviously it's, a virus. It's not your specialty. And most yeah. medical doctors do not learn about prevention and food. It's something you have to go after. Yeah, I side. just, I, I guess I don't know if there is a relationship, relationship between diet and prevention of COVID. That's what I'm trying to say. I, I'm not sure there's data on that. So I'm not. Okay, well, you do that. know, I'm sure that we knew that people that had <clears throat> COVID morbidities, if they, obesity and diabetes and heart conditions, they all had a greater risk of having a more difficult problem with COVID if they had caught it. Correct. And heart disease and diabetes are reversible and preventable with a whole food plant-based diet. And there's plenty of evidence on that. And so you connect the dots and you know that if you have diabetes and you're going to have a problem with COVID, it's like A equals B equals C, that if you're eating better no, no, no. and you don't I, I have think... diabetes, you won't have a risk. Yeah, a what risk you're alluding COVID. to are the risk factors associated yes. with worse outcomes from COVID. And absolutely, obesity, cardiac disease, and other things are risk factors that increase the possibility of having adverse outcome, including death from COVID. I think what I was commenting on is causation, which is, does food causes the actual disease itself and and that i'm not convinced with no that. no 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 but the i food think what you're alluding yeah what you're alluding to is very important which is if you watch your diet if you don't have obesity if you watch the risk factors and if you get that virus then your outcome will be favorable and you will be fine i think that's very fair statement yeah we didn't get that message really during no, we did not, the epidemic because it was uh, there was a and to this day, frankly, I mean, frankly, I mean, I think the politicization of the pandemic has been a very um, disappointing to me because, in my opinion, whether you are uh, more aligned with the right political party or the left political party, the one thing that I've noticed that both sides politicized the pandemic to their favor. And I don't think that's really what you expect from public health officials. You really want people just to really think about what is the right thing to convey to the public. And I've been disappointed with both sides, to be honest. Absolutely. We always want the truth. 
And it's hard yeah. to get at the truth. But we get it in your book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Dr. Chadi Navhan, thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to your next book. Such a pleasure to be with you. And thanks for everything you're doing. And congrats on your continued success. Woo. All right. Take care. Be well. And uh, good luck with your boys going to college. Thank you. <laughs> I do need the luck. Yeah, right. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Chadi Namhan, the author of Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. I enjoyed this book. There's a lot of good material in it, and I think you'll enjoy it too. So until the movie comes out, <laughs> we don't know if and when that's going to happen. You should get the book. And in the meantime, while glyphosate is still legal to use in this country and abroad, and while there are glyphosate residues on our food, the best thing that we can do is to buy organic. So that's my recommendation. In addition to eating a whole food plant diet, do your best to make it organic, which is the next best thing to growing your own. That's another episode of It's All About Food. I'm your host, Karen Hartglass. You can find me at responsibleeatingandliving.com. Send me a message at info at realmeals.org if you have any comments or questions. That's it for now. Thanks so much for joining me. Everybody, have a delicious week. <laughs>